everybody and welcome to another episode of adventures in .net. i'm your host caleb wells and with me today is uh, a brand new co-host joel schaubert hey everyone how you doing i'm doing great good to be here good and our guest today is the bald bearded builder mr michael jolly how are you doing doing great how are you doing good good so, Michael, if you don't mind, I'm going to let Joel tell us a little bit about himself since this is his first first sit-in, and then we'll dive right into uh, your stuff. Sounds great. Yeah, okay. good for me. Yeah, so I uh, just joined the show, this uh, .NET show for the first time here, and I've been programming for about 40, 42 years. Started okay. when I was uh, 14 years old was when I did my first program for a company. It was on a TRS-80 Model 1, and it was doing some simulations of some voice digitization algorithms and that my father was working on at his company. So nice. I got my start there and then spent probably about, oh, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years programming with the Microsoft Foundation classes, which was a predecessor to .NET. And since then, I've gone and become an independent consultant and dealt with all kinds of different technologies. And right now... I'm working with a friend on a Xamarin for Android handheld app for people that do bids and estimates and installations of heating and air conditioning equipment in residential homes. Cool. Very cool. Sounds like you have a wealth of knowledge to provide here. Well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of experiences, that's for sure. We're happy to, to have you with us. Looking forward to, to more shows with you. Have you heard of Atwood's Law? He says that anything that can be built in JavaScript eventually will be built in JavaScript, and that includes mobile apps. You can build awesome mobile apps and Apple TV and other apps with React Native. Come check us out every week as we talk about some of the ins and outs of building mobile apps with JavaScript and with React on React Native Radio. You can find it at reactnativeradio.com. So, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I have been in development for about 20 years. I, I was a little after the TRS-80. I think <laughs> my first machine was probably... The first one I really remember was uh, a Compact Presario with Windows 95. I, do remember, I did have one earlier than that. I don't even know what it was. It had the little cassette tapes, but just really high speed, you know, reel through. But really got into programming probably around 95 or 96 with HTML and there was no CSS then. There really wasn't JavaScript right. either. Uh, our favorite thing was to use Blink and Marquee and Animus and, and MIDI backgrounds. I remember those days uh, very well. Yeah, I was actually in the Air Force and I was the, the techie guy in the office. And they're like, well, hey, can you create a web page for our, our division on base? And I'm like, Sure. Let me see what I can figure out. The blinky stuff doesn't really go very well with the military. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Can you make it spin? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, spent uh, 20 years doing custom software development. And recently I started with uh, Vonage and Nexmo as oh, a developer right. advocate. So I've been doing that cool. for the last five or six months. So that's a lot of fun. Very cool. I understand that you... Uh, Similar to um, our guest last week, uh, Mark Miller, you uh, live code several days a week on Twitch. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Mark's a good friend. Yeah, we do on Twitch at uh, Bald Bearded Builder. 
it's uh, it's fun. We go in there three days a week and just learn together. You know, my background is primarily with .NET and Angular. And we okay. did that for a few months. And then I realized, you know, I'm, I'm missing an opportunity to kind of expand my own knowledge. So we kind of changed up. So now the stream is just focused on learning new things, whether that's new things in .NET, whether that's Xamarin, whether that's JavaScript or Vue or React or all the plethora of new database technologies out there. It's just playtime is what it is. I like to say we're here to have fun, and most of that time, that includes code. Cool. Good deal. So we, we've got a number of things we can, we can talk about today, but I noticed that you, you have a, a good deal of experience with containers and Docker in, in particular. Can you tell us a little bit, for people who don't use them or aren't that familiar, what's the benefit of containers and what are some of the cool stuff that, that you've uh, done with them? Yeah, there's a couple things that are just really, you know, for those who don't know what really Docker is, my friends who are really into Docker will hate me for saying this, but it's similar to a VM. However, with a VM, you're going to abstract the hardware, like how much memory, how much CPU, that sort of thing. With a container, you're really abstracting the, the operating system and getting that environment. You don't really worry about the device, the hardware capabilities. You worry about the OS and that level as far as what's installed. But it really, it's great as a way to provide a way to mimic different environments, no matter where you're at. Uh, For instance, one of the things I've been giving a talk on recently is developing inside of containers. So a lot of places will use a container to maybe either run their production sites or just processes. A lot of times microservices now are deployed via containers. But, you know, that that one phrase that all developers learn is like the first thing to get your developer badge says, it works on my machine. You know, and of course, none of our clients want to ever hear that. You know, that's like the wrong thing to say. Well, other developers don't want to hear it either. That's true. That's true. I, yeah, said, yeah. I said it last. I said it last week to one of my coworkers. Well, it was working for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the benefit of developing inside of a container is yeah. you can actually build up an image that mimics your production environment, and then have your developers bring that into say VS Code, open open the code up like that, mm-hmm. and things that may need to be installed. I'm sure if you've onboarded someone or been onboarded, you spend that week maybe getting set up to even write a line of code. You have to get everything installed and then you have to pull the code down from TFS or, or get or wherever. Then you, you finally get, you know, Oh, you've got to have this SDK or that CLI. And you're ready to go. You're oh, finally, I'm going to work on a task and you, you go to hit run and oh, wait, you're supposed to have that special API key and uh, you have to have an environment variable with this. And there's just so much that involved. That's the benefit of a container in that instance because you can build all those settings, all those CLIs into the Docker image. Mm-hmm. So okay. then all, all the developer has to do is open up, say, VS Code and all that stuff is just there. One example I give is doing a, a Google Cloud function. I don't have Google Cloud uh, CLI on my machine, but in that container, it exists. So I can 
you know, run commands. Same with the Azure CLI. I could have it just in, existing in that container. So when that container goes away, it's not on my machine. I haven't, you know, installed all this stuff that I have to keep patched and updated. The developer doesn't need to know about environment variables, that sort of stuff. All that lives in that container and is there when he wants to work and is gone when he's done. So that's, that's an interesting use case. If you were setting up something for a developer for yourself mm -hmm. and you had like your SQL server and maybe initial data set laid in there and maybe a web server, would you put that all in one container or would you split that up and run a couple containers? No, you'd split that up. You'd split that up. You'd probably want the database in its own container. If you have a web app front end, that's maybe its own, an API in its own. <clears throat> Sometimes you have like different teams working on those too, right? So maybe you have a development environment that just loads up the API for that team. Then you have another image that's just for the front end developers to work in that. And uh, so in that case, they would probably use like a Docker Compose, which can orchestrate spinning up multiple containers at the same time and kind of automates networking those. So gotcha. you could spin up a container with your .NET Core API. And then in conjunction with that container, it spins up another container with SQL Server in it. And then those two are kind of on a private network together. So your connection stream becomes SQL, whatever you named that container. Oh, that's great. So it actually handles all that, how the server finds the back in SQL Server. Because that's a lot of, that, all that systems engineering work is mm -hmm. just such a pain when you're a new developer on a project trying to set oh, up yeah. a machine. Have y'all seen uh, Microsoft's eShop on containers? It's, it's massive and, and can be kind of nasty, but, but it gives you a lot of different design patterns and methodologies, and it's all running on Docker, right? So it's got uh, RabbitMQ mm -hmm. and SQL and Angular and MVC and all these different pieces, right? Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and they've got, like you said, they've got all the Compose docs to where it builds it all. This has been a year ago now, but I actually took it mm -hmm. and I broke it down and got everything running locally. You know, the yeah. exact version of what's in Docker. And it's a heck of a lot easier to do it in Docker. It really is. It, it handles that when you use that Docker Compose that way, it orchestrates all that for you. Mm -hmm. So now you don't know how to do it. Whenever somebody sets it up and gets it ready, it's, it's, it's almost like pressing a, a Heroku button on a Git repository right. to spin it up. Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually broached this subject with my development team. It's been two years now, but they're, they're not sold on containers in general. And we have an interesting issue. Our old or existing code base is all classic ASP, written by the owner of the company, right? And so it needs IS and all this other stuff. And yeah. it's, we're, we're kind of in a unique situation there. But maybe we can, we can slowly move there. I, I bring it up every once in a while. That's kind of an interesting side question right there. What have you guys found is like the main objections people have about moving to Docker when they don't want to do it? Well, you know, I honestly, I think there's a good bit of misinformation out there. I think another thing is it's one more thing that they have to learn that they don't necessarily want to, or they feel it's one more thing they, they don't want to learn, right? Those are a couple of right there. Michael, I'm sure you've, you've run into a lot more questions about containers than I have, though. I think the, the main concern that people have, whether they'll admit it or not, is it just seems spooky. Mm. It's, 
when I develop, uh, a lot of times you're developing and maybe you have some hosted servers like you're talking about with IS running. But even if you don't in your, your co-load or, or somewhere, you know it's still like a Windows VM with IAS running. It still feels right. natural to you. You don't you don't really understand how the hardware virtualization and all that works, but to you it feels the same. You can RDP into it and see the desktop and do whatever. With Docker, you can't do that. You could get into the terminal. But it, it just feels spooky. You don't know what, what's inside that thing, what's in that container. <laughs> uh, I can't really RDP into it. It's, I think it's more about the unknown. I think once you experience building an app, no matter how small, you start to realize, oh, this isn't that weird. It's actually just another tool in my tool belt. It's not necessarily, you know, Docker's great, but it's not the, the cure for every project either, right? So... It's just a tool. Sometimes it's a good tool. Sometimes it's not. Yeah, I can see that opaqueness like scaring some people off. So with regard to that, if you were on the team that was doing like the API server, so you were doing the part in the middle and you were using the database as part of what you had to stand on top of, which completely makes sense. And then another team's doing the UI. So they're calling your API server. So if you're on that API team and now you've changed code, and the UI team's going to want that new stuff. What does the process look like then for getting them the newer containerized version of what you've got? So if you're wanting to give them a containerized version of your API, that there's a couple options. One would probably be a better separation of concerns there where the front-end team isn't necessarily giving you an image that will run the API but instead having some kind of resource that you can mock the API. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for the purposes of your front end, you just need it to be able to call and receive certain bits of data uh, that you should be able to expect from the actual one. You know, you don't want to build tests on the front end for the API, much like they won't build tests for you. So putting in some kind of mocked API there is probably a better idea. If, if you just, you know, felt like you had to have it, then the, probably the best thing to do would be to build an image and then pull that image. So in their, in their environment, they would instead have a Docker Compose that says, open a container with my front end. And then for the container that has the API, rather than saying, you know, load that from this folder of source code, it would say, pull the specific image tagged, you know, whatever co slash API specific version and, and orchestrate it that way. Oh, great. So your Docker build, you could actually, it sounds like you have like a Docker build script and you can actually say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pull this current tag. Maybe I pull from master or whatever, and I want you to repackage and make me a new one. But I do exactly. like that idea of just going with uh, mock interfaces as being the, the best first step. Yeah, I think that's the best. But I mean, you know, you could have a situation where, Maybe you have a product that has nightly builds and part of that nightly build is to spit out a specific tag of that image. So then the next day, the, the front end team could come in and pull just that latest tag. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like uh, Y has joined us. As most of our listeners know, he's from Australia and right, we had daylight savings time kick in and I forgot to mention it to him. So, <laughs> hey, Y, how's it going? Yeah, how you doing? Yeah, I'm, I don't know. Like, I think I should have just looked at the invite. I just assumed that it was 
do it at the same time. But like, lucky I wake up a bit earlier. So. <laughs> So now, so now you're so now you're going to have to be uh, up at four thirty instead of five thirty or something like that. That's that's uh, that's early. Oh, yeah, well, normally it's seven thirty in the morning, but it's six thirty. But okay. I think at some point okay. it becomes like okay. five thirty. So like, yeah. Okay. So, not so a good not, hour not for programmers. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, um, I've got young kids. So I'm always up um, early anyway. So right. Playing. So why we were um, we were just talking with uh, Michael about Docker and containers and some of the things you can do with them and how you can use them with VS Code and what kind of things you would actually put into containers and how how you would kind of segregate your your different layers, so to speak. Oh yeah, cool, yeah. nice. I mean, what have you guys been talking about so far? Like, um, like are you using SQL Server next for containers and things or? We haven't really talked about SQL Server oh, and containers. Right. You can totally do that. How would you fact, go about I gave it? a talk. Well, uh, luckily for all of us, Microsoft has official image tags for SQL Server. So it's just a matter of saying, you know, run that image and it'll fire up. It's great. I actually gave a talk on that at .NET Conf this past year. And it's a wonderful tool to have. You know, a SQL Server is like the most attacked software on the Internet today. And don't believe me, just install it on your machine and open it up to the internet and watch your logs and see how fast you start getting failed login attempt for SA, failed login attempt for SA, you know, over and over again. The great thing, once they installed that or, or released that image for everybody, the first thing I did was remove SQL Server from my machine. Um, wow. Okay. The only thing I ever use it for is for development purposes or okay. like maintenance tasks, not really maintenance tasks, but it's still tasks for the customer. Like we have one customer who used to send us a backup of their production database periodically and say, hey, can you restore your testing environments with this data? So they were very much an on-prem company, didn't want to touch the cloud, but we little did they know our test environment for them was an Azure. So we were using <laughs> SQL Azure. And the, it works great to restore a, a, a back file from SQL to Azure Cloud unless that back file contains a custom login. And of course, this client had one. So that would be like a maintenance task where somebody's got to restore that backup locally, remove that login, back it up again, and then upload that backup to the cloud. And in that instance, it was perfect because I could just spin up a container with SQL copy in that backup file, restore it inside the container, remove the login, back it back up within the container and copy that file out from the container to my local machine and then upload that to Azure. All that SQL is never installed on my machine. I can still SSMS into it just like it was. It's, it's really handy in that regard. I don't have that attack vector on my machine, but yeah. I can still do my day-to-day as needed. You can share drives on your local host machine with that container. Mm-hmm. So if, if it's something where you're developing and you actually want to see the database, uh, right. the files left over, yeah. you could simply tell it, hey, mount that drive over here. And when the container goes away and SQL goes away, all that you know, master and temp and your database, those files still live there so you can play with them. How large are some of your um, SQL databases? Because I, I know for us, right, we have some that are several gigs large and we do software as a service. So we, you know, in production, we have a thousand clients locally. We may have 50 of them, right, to test with. So some of ours get up in the gigs. 
Yeah. I say some bars. I, at, at Vonage now, I have none. <laughs> right. But, right. Uh, yeah. In, in, the, in the previous life, they were they were large. For that client, it wasn't big. They were sending us their production data, but it was just like a subset of it. Like they had some process that would duplicate their database and then suck in the last 30 days worth of transactions or something. So it was much smaller. Okay. So it was a lot easier to restore. But you don't actually, do you actually store the, um, the database in the container? Because I thought the, the, the container would only just store the instance of, the, of SQL, yeah? But the, so the, so the by default, storage. it will store it in the container. Oh, okay. But once you kill the container, wouldn't that delete all your data? It sure would. Yeah. So wouldn't you need that, to persist the data? Like, would you? Um, yeah, yeah, doesn't that sound like a bad idea? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, um, so, and we're, we're going to add this to the show notes from his .NET conf and he goes through it. But it's, it's uh, an interesting way of handling it, Michael. Yeah, can you fill us in? Yeah, you do not. I mean, uh, yeah, I should probably have prefixed this whole conversation with we are not talking about production. If you are running SQL Server in a database in production, shame on you. You, <laughs> you deserve to be flogged. Besides the issues you would have with that data persisting, you can get around that. So I, we could mount a specific directory on the host to that container and persist that data without the container being there. But containers are really meant to be just kind of transient objects. Here today, gone tomorrow, they're not made to be running 24-7. It's, it's supposed to be very capable of healing itself. You know, that's why you get into like Kubernetes and those sorts of services, app service fabric that maintain the life cycles of those things and, and protect them and bring them up when they fail, that sort of thing. This would only be for, you'd only want to use those in development scenarios or like maintenance little scenarios uh, where you're troubleshooting. All that to say, I did use them in production one time, but it was it was a very unique use case where we were using containers. We were actually trying to run an ASP.NET Core API and an Angular front end, but it was running on a Raspberry Pi connected to a little seven-inch touchscreen as basically a kiosk. It would open Chromium full screen. You, you'd never see the Raspberry Pi other than this Angular app front end that came up on the screen. But behind the scenes, it was hitting an ASP.NET Core API on the Raspberry Pi that was saving into SQL and then had some background processes running that would sync it to the company's uh, headquarters API. So the only data on that Pi was basically whatever business transactions are happening on that device that hadn't been synced because it would constantly be cleaning itself up. So in that case where I don't have concurrency issues with the database file, there's only that one little pie handling its little transactions, that works okay. And it's a small enough footprint that I can install it on a pie rather than having to, you know, have a lot of resources. But that's cool. So far, that's the only use case I've found. Yeah, that sounds fun. So I always use, um, like for me, because I work on a, well, I work on a Mac a lot of times and mm-hmm. I work with .NET stuff. So the, Using the container to use um, SQL just makes things like, well, that's the only way you can do it. But it's really, it is, yeah. It means you can trial things a lot easier. Like if I wanted to trial MySQL, I could just, you know, load up the MySQL container and I think, but mm-hmm. I've got a P, I've recently bought a PC. So would you recommend that I install SQL to develop the edition or to just use a, a Docker container? Or I'd do the, I'd, I'd just pull the image. Yeah, I'd pull the image. That, yeah. That's, 
as soon as they released the images for sequel, I think it's like 19 that's it's available yeah. now. The first thing I did was uninstalled sequel locally. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. want any version of it on there. I've still got a uh, management studio. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Right. But, uh, but that's it. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it, it's, it's just, it just boots up so fast, isn't it? You know, one yeah. command and just boots it up. One command just shuts it down kind of thing. So. Yeah, it's really easy. And and because you can mount directories on the host, you could persist data if you need it. You know, if you yeah. Yeah. And were I do, testing yeah. something and wanted that data available to you tomorrow, just mount the host. It'll save the data to your hard drive. And then tomorrow when you spin up that container, it'll connect right back to it and act like it never stopped. Yeah. That uh, Well, that actually brings up an interesting point because I think these days, anytime you install SQL locally, right, it installs the... MS SQL local DB entity framework thing, right? Whatever it's the it's the mm-hmm. the default, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of just having local, so I'm assuming in a container you're not you're not necessarily going to have that. So, or maybe you are. How how are you approaching that piece of it? And I know I'm getting very getting down to the minutia, but I'm just curious. You're talking about like connectors, like data connectors, or yeah, well, like you know when you're an SSMS. Right, instead of doing local or doing MS SQL local DB to to mm-hmm. get to your databases, are you using an IP or? Yeah, I mean you could use localhost the same. Okay, okay. Right. Localhost one twenty seven zero zero one. You know all those. All the same. Okay. Yeah. See, the, the, this is coming from someone who doesn't use Docker on a regular basis. Yeah, you can you can expose so that those those Docker ports it has ports internally, but you can expose whatever ports you want. Uh, by okay. default, they're all locked down and not accessible. But you, you may have an app inside of your container that and maybe it's a web app that normally runs on port eighty because it's a web app, right? But on your machine, you don't necessarily want it being served up on port 80. So you could map it when you fire it up and say, you know, run what that container considers to be port 80 Mm -hmm. as port 3000 on my machine. So then if you want to go to that web app, you go to localhost 3000. Mm. Actually, is port's the only way to communicate for a Docker container to to communicate outside of the container? Like, can you use, like, map to a URL or something like that? Or or it's just ports normally? You, uh, just ports. Yeah, just yeah, ports. Okay. Yeah, it's, you're mapping it to the host, and then you would map a domain or something like that to your host. Yeah, okay, sure. Gotcha. Yeah, what else do you use it for, actually? Because um, for, for me, that's that's a, my primary purpose for using Docker right now, just to, just for SQL Server, but I don't know what other use cases that, that you can use it for in development. What, have you, what else do you use it for normally? Yeah, but besides using it uh, for SQL Server, using it, I develop all my code inside a container now. Uh, so now I don't have to, if, if, if client X comes to me and says, I use this, I've got this project, it's legacy. It was written in Python too, you know, and then I've got this other client over here that says, I want something new in Python, you know, Python three, use Python three for me. Well, then I'm going to have to install Python two on my machine. I'm going to install Python three and, you know, just in the .NET world, somebody wants .NET core two, the three, you know, you've yeah, got sure. you know, full, several flavors of the full framework up, you know, but .NET Core, if I go to the console now and say .NET Build, which one of them did it? Mm. Right. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's been a while since I've had to do the commands to tell it which one to use, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's answering me, but I don't know who. <laughs> yeah. And you see like every different tool having to find their own way around that before Docker, like RVM for Ruby to manage the different mm-hmm. Ruby versions, yeah. install the machine. And that works yeah. sometimes and sometimes it didn't. Python's a great example. The, the problems between two and three. I've been doing some Ansible programming to uh, the AWS cloud lately. And mm-hmm. that's, you're right there, right in that whole thing. Do you want Python 2 or do you want Python 3? That's like step one you're faced with. So yeah. that sounds wonderful. It's not, so a, it, yeah, it's not a, any language specific problem. They, they all face it. And that is the benefit to building code in a container because you can say in this container, have Python 2. I don't so have to like, install it locally. It's just there. So is it like running it in, in like a VM, but it's in a container? Like it's a whole OS in the like? There is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. Matter of fact, if, so I, I write a lot of my code in VS Code. Matter of fact, I can't remember the last time I opened Visual Studio at this point, probably for some Xamarin stuff. But inside of that, I will have whatever frameworks, SDKs, CLIs installed uh, in that container so I don't have to install it locally. And if, actually, if you open it up in VS Code, all my containers, whether I'm writing in C-sharp or not, are Linux containers. Mm. So if you open up the terminal in VS Code, it's Bash. Hmm. Yeah. Well, containers yeah. are all Linux, right? Is that right? Or all they're, they're not all. There are Windows containers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, they, they have a heavier people, footprint, right? They do. Yeah, I think most people would agree that the Windows containers are probably not as good as Linux ones right now. Gotcha. Mm. But yeah, the, the, the Linux, every bit of code I write, even if it's .NET, it's, it's Linux container. And it's, it's interesting to see that bash command come up on my, you know, <laughs> I'll probably have a PowerShell window up at the same time. Mm. But, you know, and that's not even using WSL. It's just inside that container, right? Yeah. Oh, rest in peace, Sigwin. <laughs> <laughs> so with like things like app services like in Azure and stuff, are they just using like their own version of containers? Is that how all that stuff works? Or like all the cloud like deployment stuff stuff? I think I'm not, you know, an uh, Azure dev advocate, so I can't tell you exactly how that hardware works. I, but my understanding is that those app services are basically VMs. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then with those apps, like when you set up an app service plan, those app service plans are, exi- are, are tied to a VM. And of course, you can have as many app services in that app service plan as you want, you know, that don't exceed the yeah. limits of it. So right. I'm not sure if you guys discussed this before I got here. Did can, do we know what the difference between a VM and a container is? Yes. Yeah, we, uh, oh. we asked Michael to explain it. Because yeah, no. some people definitely get them confused or, or mixed yeah. up. So, yeah. Unless you guys have any more questions about containers, I was going to ask Michael when he got started live coding and, you know, and kind of how he got into it and, and how he approaches it. I don't know. I feel like you're asking that very accusatory, like. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm actually asking because, you know, I've seen Mark's, Mark Miller's stream, and I have actually watched um, a little bit of yours, and you guys, like, you're having way too much fun doing this. So may, maybe that's the accusatory tone, because I'm not getting to have that fun. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mark is great. Yeah. So I guess it would be maybe a year and a half ago. I was, I don't know how in the world I found it, 
but I started watching Jeff Fritz uh, yeah. with Microsoft and his stream as C Sharp Fritz. It's fantastic. He just focuses on .NET and just .NET everything. Just had a great time. There's a great community in there of, of people to chat and interaction, a lot of pair programming with Jeff. And really thought, hey, I'd love to do this myself. So around January or February of last year, <clears throat> really February, I went live for the first time and thought, you know what? I've got to write this code anyway. So why not just do it and see if some friends want to join in and chat about it, maybe get some feedback from them and ideas from them. We did that for about a month or two with .NET and Angular primarily because that was the stacks I was working in. Then realized, you know, I should probably start uh, uh, doing things I don't know. So we started branching out and doing a lot more JavaScript, some C++, you name it. If we don't know it, let's try and learn it. So in what, you know, it was really the community that drew me to it. And, you know, I think I would encourage a lot of people to try it or at least get involved in watching it and joining that community because it's really amazing you can, how you can learn that way. I mean, it's, I love watching different streamers now because I learn something new every time. Heck, even as a streamer, I learned. We had somebody, this is last week, I believe. We were building a, a little bot on stream and there was a specific part of it we were going to put in a container and it was just going to be basically receiving webhooks. That's the only, only purpose for it would be, I think it was receiving webhooks and then emitting an event on Socket.io. Uh, so we're standing it up and kind of fighting some battles with that. And someone comes into chat and says, hey, have you, why not just use an Azure function as the recipient of the webhook? Oh, and yeah. as soon as they said it, I thought, I'm a complete idiot for wasting my time on this Docker container. How did I not think of that immediately when I had this problem? So we, we dropped in the middle of the stream and immediately, you know, turned on a dime and went down that route and uh, implemented it. So it's, it truly is pair programming. Very cool. Only with about 50 to 60 other people. Right. Right. <laughs> well, Hey, if you miss something, one of them will definitely catch it. Right. That's right. That's right. They'll let you know. Yeah, yeah, they're very vocal. They're not shy. Yeah, and then, of course, following that, that's, that actually is what precipitated my move to Dev Relations. Is oh, okay. uh, I found as much as I enjoy building things, like some of our projects uh, from the past, you know, are running in you know Coca Cola's War Room and Harley Davidson and you know just some big companies and some startups. But, you know, you always have that enjoyment as a developer to know, you know, this customer's using what I built and it's working. But at the same time, I know, like, as, as good as I felt seeing that up on the big screen in Coke's War Room in Atlanta, I realized that in five years, it's going to be gone. Mm. You know, and at the same time, while I was streaming, I would have people sending me Twitter DMs and Discord messages that said, hey, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing. One was specifically talking about Docker and said, I really appreciate your streams on that because I've always felt like that was just off limits to me. But, you know, you're presented it in a way that it feels approachable now. I feel like I can try it. And for me, just it, it you know, that became my new win. You know, I realized I'm, I'm not exactly in the right field. So that's what kind of precipitated that that changed that pivot. So on Twitch, I think you mm -hmm. guys have a group you're called Live Coders. Live Coders, I'm not yeah. sure if it started by Fritz or not, 
but there there seem to be quite a few of you in the group. How did that come about? There's too many. We need to thin the herd. No, no. It, it was started by uh, Jeff Fritz. Yeah, he, he started it March or April, I guess, last year. And it has just really snowballed. I don't know how many members there are that's growing. Just I want I know there's over 100. I'm not sure there's 150 yet, but we're adding members all the time in all different languages, all different styles. If, if you're, you know, Twitch is very different than YouTube. If you ever go watch YouTube, those programmers never make a mistake. Uh, <laughs> right. They've never written a bug. You know, they've never, they barely ever have to backspace. You never see Stack Overflow or Google on there. It's uh, super polished, right? Yeah. Right, right, right. Twitch is the other side. It's it's the warts you don't see on YouTube. It's a real developer writing code. So you don't get to just see, you know, someone's prowess with C Sharp. You get to see their Google Foo and uh, their Stack Overflow you know, capabilities, you know, hey, this person's a pro at copy paste, just like me, you know. Yeah. Uh, the unglamorous really, world of programming, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you feel like it, it kind of combats that imposter syndrome that a lot of developers have yeah. when they go and look at that stuff. And you realize, hey, you know, if, if Jeff Fritz, who is just killing it over here, struggles <laughs> with stuff too, yeah. maybe I'm not so, you know, Incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good one. Yeah. Well, you know, I've I've found right that when you can watch another developer work, especially one that that you think you know knows their stuff, right, is really good mm-hmm. at what they do, you can learn so much more from their mistakes than you can from the things they do right. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. That that I think one of the most critical skills in our industry is the ability to debug and kind of deduce what's wrong without all the information. And, and, you know, like we mentioned that sometimes that includes Googling. Sometimes that includes stack overflowing. Sometimes just looking through documentation as much as we don't want to read the manual, all those are skills and, and kind of the reasoning of, okay, why are you looking at that? Why did you search for that phrase? Why, you know, those kind of things, putting those pieces together really improves me when I'm watching those streams to think, oh, that's an interesting approach to, to take that problem apart and try to figure out what is going on there. You know, that was one of the biggest favors another programmer did for me. We, we were, I was in at a large online brokerage house working in the architecture team. And this guy was sort of the architect among architects. He was just fantastic. And he would debug these really hard problems. And in our environment, you could only release code every two weeks. So if you had a bug hard enough, you had to write extra code to kind of trap it down. You know, is it on this side or this side of the fence and keep working on it? It could take you a couple months for a really hard bug. Mm-hmm. But he would just show us, oh, I've got this solved. So I thought he was magic. And I thought, well, he's magic. I'm not. And one time he like worked with me and showed me how many two-week cycles it, ta- it would take him to pin down one of these bugs. And I'm like, wow. The smartest guy in the room also has to work really, really hard if it's a difficult problem. And that just kind of dispelled this myth I had of there are some people that are just magic and everything's easy for them. Yeah, yeah, I, agree. That, sure. that's, I think it's a myth that we all have, right? And mm-hmm. as, as we start out developing, how, how fortunate you were to have him willing to pour in and mentor you, 
you know, I think we all need to be better at that mentoring and kind of pulling up those new developers that are coming after us and, and building them up. We all write bugs, you know, (laughs) believe it or not, we all write bugs. If you've seen my stream, you definitely know I write bugs, but you know, so, so having that uh, empathy for each other and, and carrying each other along, you know, it really goes a long way. You know, I've also listening to the, to other developers as well, like, you know, we've all had probably years and years of experience, but just sometimes you just have someone fresh in the team and that could be a, a, someone that's a little bit inexperienced, but just having that fresh um, perspective makes a big difference as well. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week, we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. All right. Well, unless you guys have any more questions uh, for Michael, I think we might might move on to picks. Great. And Michael, I'm not sure if we, we filled you in, but we do picks at the end of every episode, and they can be anything. They don't have to be technology-related, right? Books, movies, music, sleep. You can pick sleep, right? Because I don't get enough of that. <laughs> so, uh, Joel, why don't you go, go first this time around? That sounds great. So mine is just a, an old classic, but it's really, really helps me a lot. And that's the Flux or Flux program running on my Mac that starts to suck the blue out of the screen so I can actually get sleepy when nighttime comes. And I've been using It's amazing. It does it kind of subtly. So sometimes I'll be working, staying up a little late and it'll start to suck the blue out. And I'll look at something and it's like, that doesn't look right. And it's like, oh yeah, because I'm supposed to be asleep now. That's why it doesn't look right. So that's been, that's been a great one. And then the second one I got to say is about a year ago, I started this Xamarin project with a, a friend who has a consulting company working for this HVAC company. And I was really surprised. It's not often I use a framework that you don't have some part of a bug in the framework. You got to work around or do some adjustment. We just literally have not found a case yet where the Xamarin for Android didn't do what it said it was going to do. So that's been uh, impressively refreshing. Yeah, that, that Flux application is it's pretty good. So it's, it's built into a lot of OSs now, actually. But yeah, they say that that blue light is what kind of keeps you up at night, isn't it? And removing that kind of makes you a bit more sleepy. And you know, I, I know I have a problem with when I program, um, getting back, getting to sleep, <laughs> you know, at night kind of things. Yeah, might, so that might not have anything to do with the light, though. That might just have something to do with the fact that when you're programming, you're you know, you're kind of lost in in thought and focus and things like that. But yeah, I'll say too, sometimes when I need to see something with the right colors and I'll say, hey, disable this for an hour or whatever, and then it puts the blue back in. If it's late yeah. at night, it can just be, it feels shocking to my eyes at first. So I, it's doing something good. Yeah. So uh, why, why don't you go next? All right. So this week's my um, pick would be a, a new podcast I've started listening to. It's called um, Kingpins. So it's, it's kind of like this kind of like a, it's a podcast and every week it shows, it talks about like a, like a gangster from, from like the 1920s or like the 1930s and things like that, like Al Capone. And yeah, it's, the production quality is like really good. So it's got like music and sound effects and things like that. And yeah, I've just really started um, listening to it and really enjoying it. So. Oh, very cool. So my pick this week, not surprising to anyone who has listened to our podcast, has to do with gaming. And I may have actually already picked this one before, but it's so good, I'm going to do it again. EpicGames.com. They're the creators of the Unreal Engine and Fortnite and all kinds of other stuff. Currently, they are giving away 
two to three games every Thursday to anyone who has an account and goes on and basically just adds them to their list. So I think I've gotten 30 games by now for free from them. I don't know that I'll ever play any of them because I never have enough time. But yeah, that's my pick for, for this week. Yeah, I, I see all that. Right. Isn't it actually yeah. catch Because I, I saw it. It's, like, so, it's all free. Like There must be well, something. Like- well, it's not all free. Epic, they decided they wanted to compete with Steam because yeah. Steam takes a 30% cut from the developers. And Epic uh-huh. said, uh, we're going to do one better. We'll only take 15%. And so they, they've taken some market share from Steam. And I think them selling or giving away these free games is just more incentive for people to come to their store and possibly buy other games. So uh, cool. I might actually do it then. I was a little bit suspicious looking at it. So no, free, right? like, n- <laughs> nothing suspicious at all there. It's on the up and up. Cool. All right, Michael, what you got for your pick? Yeah, so I've got a few of them for you. Cool. Uh, on the tech-related side... I'm going to tell you about two uh, Visual Studio Code extensions. Uh, I use Gists a lot on GitHub. Whether I'm preparing a talk and want to record the abstracts just in a, a place that I can get to easily, I'll keep them there. Uh, of course, if you're doing that, people want bios, so it's a great place. All those little code snippets you always want, but they're not super easy to edit there. The uh, extension is called GIST. It's by Ken Howard. It's on the marketplace, and it allows you to edit your GISTs from within VS Code. Save them there. It's just so handy to have. It's kind of out of the way. You can bring up a gist while you're in another project, edit it, save it back, and be done with it. The second is another extension. It's called Remote Development. It's actually an extension by Microsoft, and it is for building inside of containers, building over WSL, or building over SSH really goes along in what we were talking about here today. So that's how I do it. And those are both amazing picks as far as extensions. And then for all of those bald and bearded friends out there who want to make sure they get the closest shave, no sponsorship, by the way, I'm just, this is not an ad. First of all, you can find uh, them both Probably, I know one you can find, both of them you can find on Amazon. One is the uh, Vikings Blade Chieftain Double-Edged Safety Razor to get that close shave on your head, you know, get that shine really good. To get that shine, you're going to need to use Duke Cannon Beard Balm and Beard Oil. Uh, If you go look for it, it's probably called Best Damn Beard Oil and Best Damn Beard Balm. They're both amazing to uh, soften up the beard and then give you that shine on top. So for those of you with the grooming tips, there you go. Well, I can tell you right now, you definitely have an awesome bald dome. Uh, (laughs) Unlike mine. (laughs) It's got the shine, doesn't it? Well, I was, I was going to say, and, and this is definitely uh, plutonic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us for this episode. Been been a good discussion. Hopefully, people learned a little bit about Docker. Got some uh, good extensions to go take a look at. I'm definitely going to check out the remote development one. Um, that just one and, sounds pretty uh, good for me, actually. So, oh, I, there you go. I do a lot of just, um, and I'm always just cutting, pasting into the browser, etc. So, okay, yeah, it's good. I'll check it out. But we we appreciate you joining us. And Joel survived his first podcast. <laughs> Yay! Hey, thanks for going easy on me, Caleb. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it only gets harder from here. That's right. It'll be 10 <laughs> push-ups next time. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, to everyone listening, you know, if you want to uh, find out more about us, you can go to devchat.tv. There you can find uh, our Discord link and not only Adventures in .NET, but a number of other awesome podcasts that come from the network. And we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.